Welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show, and thank you for joining me on this Super Bowl Sunday. So we have a special guest for you tonight. Her name is Elaine Bilson, and she's running for Congress in Maryland. In 1987, Elaine Bilson got her bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Maryland at College Park and her master's degree in social work from the University of Baltimore in 1993. As a clinical social worker for 28 years, she's treated matters like anger management and anxiety, chronic medical conditions, domestic violence eating disorders, grief, loss, women's issues, trauma, and much more. Following 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina and bank robberies, she provided counsel to those living with the profound mental health impact of that. Ms. Bilson is also trained in play therapy, helping children cope with academic challenges, bullying, divorce, peer pressure, and low self-esteem. She has worked in private practice, community agencies, and hospitals, as well as serving in the United States Army as a social worker. She says that she joined the United States Army. Um, she was 42 at the time when she joined the U.S. Army, and she joined it because she wanted to be a part of something bigger, something bigger than herself, something that was more beneficial to society. She wanted to expand on that front. In 2008, as now joining in the Army, she was deployed to Afghanistan and she returned in 2010. During her time in Afghanistan, Ms. Belson was the executive officer for the Medical Command. In 2000, she became a member of the Charles County Democratic Central Committee, serving there until 2002, giving her lots of experience on Capitol Hill and with nonprofit agencies, also serving as a behavior health consultant for the Civista Women's Center Diabetes Program. And with 30 years of experience in clinical, military, political, and also teaching fields, Elaine Bilson has a pretty remarkable record. She has decided to run for the United States Congress and not just any seat. Elaine Belson is running for Congress in Maryland against the number two Democrat in the House of Representatives. Just for a little context here, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House, is a Speaker in the House of Representatives. She's the Democrats, she's the Democrats leader in that branch of Congress. And the person that she's running against is Steny Hoyer. Steny Hoyer is the majority leader in the House of Representatives, so that's a big deal. Steny Hoyer has been serving in Congress in that seat since 1981 coming into Washington right after the 1980 presidential elections when Ronald Reagan was elected president. So it's been 41 years for Mr. Hoyer. Ms. Belson is not the only one challenging leader Hoyer, though. There was also a former Capitol Police officer, other Democratic candidates and Republican challengers as well. If Ms. Belson wins the primaries on June 28th of this year, defeating Steny Hoyer, she will go against the Republican for this year's midterm elections. Joining me now for the interview, I'm very, very happy and pleased to say is Maryland Democratic congressional candidate Elaine Belson. Ms. Belson, thank you so very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Jeremiah, for having me. If I could just make um, two corrections. First of all, um, I went to University of Maryland at Baltimore. Okay. Okay. Um, and the other is, um, last time I checked, which wasn't that long ago, I am the only other candidate besides Sunny Hoyer who has filed to okay. actually run for office. So. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, one of my first questions for you here is, why did you decide to become a social worker? Well, I like to say that um, social worker found me, social work found me instead of mm. the other way around, because I've always been interested in politics, but I also was always interested in the clinical side of things. And social work is the only 
mental health discipline that really is equally interested in both. And I went back and forth throughout the years, um, starting from when I graduated college, between politics and uh, counseling. I can go into more detail if you want me to, as far as that mm-hmm. goes. But it's been a, it's been a an interesting roundabout ride. Hmm. You note that along your journey in life, um, you wanted to become a part of something bigger than yourself. And so you joined the U.S. Army um, at the age of 42. Um, What was that experience like for you? And what did you learn during that time? Well, it was immensely rewarding. And I, I think as most people will tell you, you've been in the military. I mean, they learn I learned more in that period of time than I think a person usually learns in a lifetime. Mm. So um, one of the things that um, was most rewarding, as you alluded to, was the opportunity to be the executive officer, XO as we call it, for medical command for all of Afghanistan. And that involves uh, procurement, supplies, and um, Um, what is the third thing? Procurement, supplies, and um, I can't think of it right now. But anyway, (laughs) it's nothing that I had any experience in. Let's put it that way. So um, what I found, though, was that I excelled at it because of my social work skills, because Mm. of my people skills, my problem-solving skills, my communication skills, and if anybody wants to go on uh, GameChanger2022.com, which is my campaign website, you can read the uh, letter, recommendation letter that the command wrote about me. And it'll just show you how much I was able to accomplish and how impressed he was with my performance. Mm. So you're not a typical candidate for Congress, and you made that clear on your website, indicating that this will be a historical campaign. Um, Why did you decide to run for Congress? And if you are elected, what do you hope to achieve? Well, I'll tell you what was the straw for me. Uh, The last four or five years have been, as for many people, right, as for almost everyone, uh, uh, just an excruciating experience. But for for mental health folks, um, particularly so because we have been shut out of the mainstream conversation and we've tried a number of different ways to get our input heard, you know, reaching out to Congress, reaching out to the media, et cetera. And so um, the, the thing that, that we see going on is because as, as mental health perfect professionals, we have a different perspective, which is that we look at human behavior, the underlying contributing factors that bring us to where we are today, to the turmoil that we see. And uh, so, the, so that's been something that has been brewing in me for, for the last five years. But the, uh, the straw was the Virginia gubernatorial uh, race because of um, Youngkin's using the critical race theory as a means of getting elected. And the fact that it worked mm-hmm. just um, was a very ominous sign, I thought, for the direction that we're going in. So 
I just, at that point, I said, I can't sit on the sidelines anymore and watch us self-destruct as a democracy um, and uh, just continuing to hurt each other the way that we are when I know there's alternatives. Mm. You've watched it. I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say you'd asked me about what my, uh, what I'm interested in pursuing as far as uh, a congresswoman. And, you know, I have a number of issues that are important to me. So, um, you know, education, obviously mental health, um, bringing mental health into the mainstream conversation, which is something that a lot of people are disturbed about. Education in terms of bringing mental health curriculum into the public schools. We need to prepare people for, to prepare young people for the 21st century. And I'm sure, you know, you hear about all of the, the violence that goes on in the schools, um, the behavioral problems. We need to address that. And, um, other, other things, obviously, are women's issues. But I think overall, the main thing is bringing about renewing bipartisanship. And we need expertise in communication and problem solving in order to make that happen. What we're seeing is people repeating the same strategies of trying to appeal to people on a rational level. And I can tell you, no matter how compelling your argument, how much data you use, you know, how impassioned your, your, your rhetoric, you are not going to change people that way. That's just not the way people change. <clears throat> so you have to know how to engage them and you have to know how to communicate in a way that they will be receptive and not defensive. And you have to know how to think outside the box and in terms of creative, uh, creative problem solving to avoid uh, uh, power struggles and, and, and arguments. Mm. In relation to bipartisanship with you being a social worker and sort of having that empathy um, towards the other side, um, is that more likely to sort of change one's perspective on particular legislation? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned empathy. Um, I actually have a list of 15 principles of communication that I created myself and I use in my practice. The most important one is empathy. But what empathy means is empathy is really a, a, a tool. It's about wanting to understand where the other person is coming from, even though you disagree with them. Mm. And the reason why that is practical is because you can't solve a problem if you don't really understand the underlying motivation. And I'll give you a political example. So Liz Cheney is on this January 6th committee. And uh, in October, she had made a speech where she said that, you know, she had heard a number of her colleagues in the last several days saying that, you know, um, they don't want to to be a target. Um, they're just trying to keep their heads down. And she says to them publicly, um, you know, do what you know is right, right? Um, think about the arc of history, etc. Well, people have been saying that for about four years, do what you think is right, follow your, you know, follow your morals, your values. Why isn't it working? Because people have good reasons for making bad decisions. And until you understand what the underlying motivation is for these folks, 
and help them to problem solve. So I don't give advice. What I, what I tell people is I empower them to make their own decisions. And so I ask a lot of questions. One of the things that is important is helping people to access all of their concerns, not just the ones that perhaps are the most uncomfortable or the most compelling. So I have an expression, um, chocolate or vanilla ice cream, that's easy. But most things in life we have mixed feelings about. So I'm sure if you were to go, if, if, if Liz Cheney, for example, was to approach some of those uh, colleagues and really want to use empathy to understand what's going on for them, where is this coming from? And to also help them to understand how do they feel about not speaking up? You know, how do they feel about what's going on in the country as a whole? Because I will tell you that the majority of people really do have mixed feelings, even when it appears as though they are acting in a very one-sided way. It's mm. just because they're ignoring other feelings. And that's why we have feelings. They're a survival mechanism to help us to make good choices. So it's about helping them to uh, tune into all of their feelings and then to help them come up with a solution that takes all of those things into account. So right now, what we're doing is we're trying to push people to choose either career, right, and even maybe physical safety versus doing the quote unquote right thing. What we have to do is think outside the box and to problem solve. What are some options that might ensure both? Hmm. Over the course of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we've seen an increase in um, domestic violence cases. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, <clears throat> it's not a surprise. I mean, those of us in this field had anticipated that. Um, and uh, it, it, when I was in the army uh, in garrison, the role of social work officer is to handle domestic violence. That's basically our entire role while we're you know, not deployed in garrisons, we call it. So I dealt a lot with that. One of the, the things that I found was kind of interesting was when I would interview a soldier, they wouldn't just say, well, you know, I just got angry and I you know, punched her. There was always the story, you know, about this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And I thought about that when I was working with soldiers and it's, it's like a, a row of dominoes, right? If you push on one domino, it's gonna topple the next and the next and the next. But if you remove one domino from that row, you interrupt that process, right? You change the outcome just by doing one thing. With women, what we often teach them is, you know, keep your, keep your um, phone by you, keep your keys with you. You know, if, if any time you should feel at, you know, in, in, at a risk, you know, to, to just leave the house. Well, when, you, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, right? That mm -hmm. limits, you know, accessibility to, to escaping, plus the person that they normally get, um, you know, into altercations with uh, is, is home more. 
a lot of times uh, what precedes abuse is um, alcoholism, alcohol, drinking, you know, drugs under the influence. And so if they're home and they're not working and they're unhappy, they may be drinking more, which means that they're um, also being more abusive more frequently. It, so it becomes this, uh, this domino effect, as you say. Mm. As, there is a, a nationwide consensus uh, that millions of children lost a year of learning amid the coronavirus pandemic. Um, as kids are returning back to in-person learning and some still doing virtual learning, uh, the academic gap isn't really being addressed. Um, what do you think should be done on that? You know, I think one of the things that because we're not prepared for it, we, uh, you know, the problem with education is it lacks a lot of creativity. And mm -hmm. so then, you know, you put people in front of a screen and they have even more limitations. But there are people, there are children that homeschool and they work with companies that are used to teaching, uh, you know, virtually, and they have more methods of engaging kids uh, and, uh, and, and, and um, getting them to also be more motivated. So I was, um, I, you mentioned that I do play therapy. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I was, that I did was uh, I attended a play therapy workshop for uh, virtual therapy therapists. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was just amazing to me, the, the woman that was teaching it just came, you know, showed us so many ideas that I never would have thought of. And so, you know, we need to reach out to people that are used to this medium, um, but it really is reflective of a bigger problem in education, which is, like I say, a lack of creativity. If you, if you look around, there are a few uh, pilot projects out there. I'll give you an example. In Northern Virginia, uh, there's this gentleman, his name is Hamish Brewer. He's originally from New Zealand and he grew up in the foster care system and he has completely turned around two schools already as principal. Mm. And so I'll just give you an example of, of what he does. First of all, he's, he's got tattoos all over him. <laughs> you know, he rides around on a skateboard in the hallways he has a desk that has wheels, a rolling desk that he keeps his laptop on. So he's not, you know, just holed up in his desk all day waiting for people to come to him. He puts murals, he has murals painted on the walls of heroes that the children, you know, like children of color, uh, you know, children of Latin or African-American, uh, you know, backgrounds, uh, you know, heroes that they can identify with, like Cesar Chavez or Martin Luther King. Um, they he encourages the teachers to not worry about teaching to the test. And so, you know, there's been videos, uh, documentaries done of him, and you, you see the teachers and how much happier they are, mm. how much more rewarding it is. And every morning on the PA, he talks to the students, he tells them every morning how much he loves them. 
right? He engages the parents early on in the process and lets them know, we can't do this without you. And we, one of the things we can do in order to keep parents engaged, because that is a big problem, is doing more uh, social services in the school settings. So, you know, that's just some examples of, you know, the kind of stuff that is out there, it is being done. Mm. And so in response to that, sort of that major transformation in the educational system, um, do you think for years there's sort of been um, a lack of really addressing the social impact in terms of education um, is essentially making children feel welcome at school? Well, what I would like to see, this would be one of my primary goals, is to have a mental health curriculum in the school systems, to teach emotional intelligence, problem-solving skills, self-esteem, anger management, suicide prevention, et cetera. And also to train teachers to understand mental health as well. What I have found through my interactions with teachers, they are very dedicated and they care a lot. They, that comes through. But what they don't stop to think about is what is the underlying causes of this child's acting out, whatever the behavior is. And I, I know in our school system here in Charles County, there is a program that was available before the end pandemic. I, I'm not sure whether it's been con continued to be offered, but it was a, an elective. I mean, it wasn't mandated, but the teachers that went through this training that taught them about, you know, looking at the underlying mental health issues came out of it saying, oh my gosh, this was so helpful. I'm so glad I took this course. Mm. Right. And so, you know, this is just not just those schools and, and teachers. This is our entire country, our entire society. We don't recognize that how important mental health is to our basic functioning. You know, how we govern as a country, how we function as a society is inextricably linked to how we think, feel, communicate, and problem solve. I mean, all the problems that you can point to, what is at the base of them? It's human behavior. Mm. You are very um, impassioned on mental health, especially as a social worker. Um, if elected to Congress, do you hope to um, champion or write any legislation that would um, improve that field? Absolutely. You know, the big problem here is, and, and like I said, the last four years when, when Trump was in office, it was glaring because we warned people early on that this was somebody with a personality disorder and he would not change. You know, people had hoped he would change. In fact, I remember in the 2016 election, Joe Biden was interviewed, I think it was on Morning Joe, 
And he was asked about Trump and he said, well, hopefully he'll surround himself with good people or he'll rise to the occasion. And I remember thinking that is not going to happen Uh. because if you know anything about personality disorders, people with personality disorders don't change. I have another expression. We don't have a crystal ball, but what we can have is a toolbox full of coping skills that we can take with us wherever we go. That's where we get our sense of control, our sense of empowerment, our mastery over the world around us. So if you think about it that way, someone with a personality disorder has a very limited set of tools in their toolbox, and they will keep going back to them because that's all that they have. So I don't know if I answered your question. (laughs) (laughs) I think the question was in relation to, uh, yo, sorry, sorry. Mental health legislation that you have. Ah, yes, 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 yes. (laughs) So, so my, yeah, my point behind that is it really starts with recognizing that mental health is a part of everything, right? It's not just secluded to, you know, suicide or drug addiction, you know, et cetera. Uh, it, it, it permeates every aspect of our lives. But yes, we need to, like I said, address, I think, mental health, particularly early on, you know, and not assume that children are going to get this kind of training, uh, guidance at home. And um, also, you know, uh, a couple of other areas, uh, there's been legislation to address uh, domestic violence. um, And um, um, I think we need to think about mental health in terms of drug addiction, obviously. So, you know, those are some of the big big ones that we're really struggling with as a society right now. Once again, my guest is uh, Miss Elaine Bilson. She's a Democratic congressional candidate for Maryland. We'll be right back. Whether you put down your phone to be there for your daughter or pick up your phone to call a helpline for your roommate, When it comes to mental health, now more than ever, every action counts. Welcome back. Joining me once again is Democratic congressional candidate um, for Maryland. It is Elaine Bilson. Ms. Bilson, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Thank you. The United States has seen an exponential increase in coronavirus cases and hospitalizations due to the Omicron variant. Uh, President Biden has been in office for a year now, and his administration has implemented vaccine mandates as well as requiring masks in federal workplaces and also other vicinities. Um, how do you view the administration's response to COVID-19 so far? Well, I think that they are trying as hard as they can with what they know. But I think the limitation here, again, goes back to understanding human behavior and that you cannot talk people into doing things. I have several patients, patients that are good people, nice people, intelligent people who refuse to get the vaccine. 
And so you may recall me saying earlier about the fact that we very rarely have one feeling about something, right? Mm -hmm. So this isn't about me versus you or us versus them. This is about what I call you versus you. This is about helping people to make good decisions by tuning into all of their feelings. So for example, if, um, if I ask somebody, you know, well, do you uh, worry about getting sick or do you want to stay healthy? I mean, obviously they want to stay healthy. Um, how would you feel if you got somebody else sick? Well, they would feel bad about that, obviously. So, so what this is about is not inject, well, injecting, pardon the pun, <laughs> or imposing <laughs> my solution on you, but helping you to come up with a solution that takes into consideration all of your concerns, not just your fear of something happening to you because you take the vaccine. I think the biggest concern that I hear is that it hasn't been studied long enough, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I, I try to encourage people to go to, you know, uh, reliable websites, um, to, you know, the pharmaceutical websites that produce them or CDC, um, some other objective scientific, Mayo Clinic, right? C Cleveland Clinic, um, to find, get more information about whether or not that's the case. So it's about helping people to make their own decisions. But again, you have to balance that with, you may not be comfortable with the vaccine. So then you also have to think about, you don't want to get sick. You don't want to get anybody else sick. Those are also concerns that you have, right? And so what are you going to do in order to have that balance? You know, are you going to, uh, to um, quarantine yourself, right? Are you going to double mask and make sure that you keep distance, six feet of distance from all times? Maybe don't ever eat indoors or, you know, I mean, there's things that there's, there's has to be adjustments. We all have to make adjustments. Yeah. Right. And I think that if you trust people to make good decisions, but just simply by helping them to be aware that they really do have more than one need going on at a time, then we wouldn't be where we are today. But the problem is, is that people get stuck on one solution and then they argue that solution. And that happens with a lot of problems in our society, you know, in terms of gun violence, in terms of uh, unwanted pregnancy. What I try to teach people is to identify the problem and then start uh, um, problem solving, exploring solutions. There are things that you can do, that you can change. There are things that other people can change. And then there's, you can change how you look at a situation or how you cope with your feelings about that situation, right? And mm -hmm. so what people rely on the most is trying to change somebody else, right? 
to the point that they will argue and repeat themselves and again and again, you know, this is what the media keeps doing. They keep presenting news reports and that data, expecting that that's going to change people's minds. Well, you know, I always say that if it were that easy, they would have done so already. Yeah. People rarely change because you tell them to. You have to help them to recognize their own feelings about it, conflicting feelings, and then help them to problem solve. In terms of society, it's the same way. We have to identify the problem and then together problem solve. How can we, you know, get past this problem? And uh, respect that, you know, we're going to have some alternative suggestions and to try to find some that we can agree upon, right? But, you know, what happened with, uh, I think that, I think what was happening is that it was unexpected. You know, they assumed that they would roll out this vaccine and everybody would want to take it. Uh And since that isn't what happened, you know, it's about, you know, how do we, go about reaching those people um, and, and empowering them to make a decision that is, um, you know, meets everybody's needs, including their own. That does that seem like sense. a very uh, strategic and also logical point there, given that um, we've seen many friendships and relationships among families being destroyed um, because of, I guess, sort of people's inability to rationalize with others and really address those problems uh, rather than just asking, why aren't you willing to get the vaccine immediately shut that person out of their life? Um, How do you think we can do better on addressing that and really being patient with others? Well, um, that's a a very interesting question. (laughs) So I think I mentioned earlier that I have 15 principles of communication. Mm -hmm. So what I tell people about communication, it's like learning a new language. It's not intrinsic. And so as a society, we don't learn it. And so you don't know what you don't know. I actually have an article in my website. I have a blog and there is an article in there, how to talk to Trump supporters. And it goes into detail about strategies that you can use and also just explaining how human beings think. So we get frustrated about the vaccine, but I'm sure if I ask some people that are, you know, adamant pro-vaccine, do you ever speed on the highway? Mm. Well, you know, that endangers your life, that endangers the lives of people around you, and you may have a very good reason for doing it, Uh even though rationally it doesn't make a lot of sense. This is just human behavior. We all are driven by emotion and then we rationalize it after the fact. And so what we need to do is start helping people to be more aware of their feelings so that instead of being reactive, you're proactive. Wow, okay. And what I tell people who go to counseling is the only difference between you and somebody quote unquote out there who's not going to counseling is that you are gaining insight and you are learning new coping skills. And so what that does is that allows you to be deliberate. If you're angry about something, 
instead of just reacting to that, you can think about and say, okay, how do I, what am I angry about? Where is this coming from? What's in my control? What do I want to do about it? Most people go through life reacting to feelings that they're not even aware that they have. Hmm. So it's all about insight and coping skills. That's what I help people to do. And, and they have the ability. It's all within themselves. If I may, um, let me share with you another analogy. So mm -hmm. if I touch a hot stove, what's going to happen? I'm going to feel pain. And that's because I have nerve endings in my hand, which pick up heat. And then that signals to the brain and the brain then signals back pain so that I move my hand. I lift my hand up. If I didn't have those nerve endings there, I would leave my hand and, and then it would get damaged. Well, we have uncomfortable feelings for the same reason. They are a survival mechanism. They're not something to, to bottle up, to fight, to analyze. They are there as red flags to help us, to tell us that either there's a need that's not being met or there's a threat, right? Um, or we need to um, set boundaries or assert ourselves in some way, right? So the problem is, is that most people don't take the time to ask themselves, what am I feeling? Label the feeling. Where is it coming from? What's causing it? And then what's in my control? If, if everybody would just ask themselves, what's in my control? alone, we could alleviate a lot of the division in this country. But instead, what we try to do is change each other. Hmm. Wow, that was a very, very influential uh, point there. Um, last year, the Biden administration committed to withdrawing from Afghanistan, and they officially did so in August. Uh, many described the pullout um, as chaotic, given the explosions near the Kabul airport, as well as the airstrike by the U.S. military uh, that killed innocent civilians. Um, also, Afghanistan translators uh, that assisted the military being left behind and many other issues. Others described this as a success. Um, as someone who served in Afghanistan, how did you perceive the way the Biden administration withdrawed? Well, as I said, I was EXO for medical command in, in Afghanistan. I have flown over that country mm -hmm. and it is all desert except for a very smart, small portion along the river. There was no way we were ever going to reform that country. Mm. And there's nothing that we could have done that would have changed the outcome. And if you, you know, some of the people that are experts in, you know, Afghanistan or military, um, you know, have, have um, been in the military in Afghanistan, we're also saying the same thing. It, this was just finger pointing, right? And there was finger pointing the other direction. So, you know, if Trump hadn't let these certain people out, you know, then when, so the point is that there was no, there was no way we were going to change 
the basic uh, culture of this country. And so it, it was unfortunate, but it was going to happen. Um, so I think where people point to it as being a success is simply the fact that we finally did withdraw. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, within that, you know, there are some obviously tragic stories, and then there are some some very um, heartwarming stories that came out of it. And so, obviously, your perspective is going to be influenced by that. But I can just tell you, it, it's um, it's a desert. There's just not much there that mm. that we can do anything with. Ahead of the 2022 midterms this year, um, some of the things that are on the minds of Americans um, is just recently the retire the um, announcement of retirement by Justice Stephen Breyer, as well as voting rights and also abortion rights in the United States. Um, what are your thoughts on those issues in particular? Well, I think that um, Justice Breyer made the right decision. Unfortunately, I wish it hadn't come to this, but we have gotten to a point where Congress is so divided that the only way they see, the only way they see they can govern is by winning, is by winning elections and being the, um, the majority party. Mm -hmm. And I have another expression, you can win the battle, but lose the war. And that's what we're doing. You can win an election, you can be become the majority, but we are undermining our social fabric if we continue to compete with one another, because we cannot function as a country if we keep competing with each other, no more than a family, no more than two parents can, right? No more than two uh, senior uh, CEOs at a company, right? Uh, So... That's why I was referring earlier to to problem solving. Um, So the, unfortunately, the Supreme Court has just become another byproduct of that competition. And quite frankly, I blame a lot of it on um, Mitch McConnell. Um, Again, if you want to go to um, gamechanger2022.com. I have a a blog article that I wrote in 2019 about him. Uh, I call it the most dangerous man in America. It's not who you think, (laughs) because of course everyone would think it's Trump. Um, You know, he he has had this uh, cynical approach to politics for a long time. And um, I think he's poisoned a lot of the process. The problem is, is the answer is not to as some political operatives would say, you know, fight fire with fire. You know, we, the Democrats need to be fight back, you know? Um, no, that, that's not the answer. Um, but again, you don't know what you don't know. That's the problem in our society. There's things that, that I know, people in my field know about how you can work with people, communicate, problem solve. Uh, and so until, you know, until we do that, the Supreme Court is just going to be another victim of this partisanship. Mm. And uh, as far as abortion, so again, we have a lot of problems in society that become polarizing because we get fixated on solutions. 
abortion is not a problem. It's a solution to a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Gun control is another solution to a problem. I'm not saying that it isn't a solution or that I don't support those solutions, but the problem is what? The problem is unwanted pregnancies, right? And there's a lot of progressives who have tried to address that, the underlying issues. Um, You know, it's interesting because I was thinking about this and in my work, I actually take both approaches, progressive and conservative. And so if I can do it in my practice, then we can do it as a country. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So I remember I said, people have good reasons for making bad decisions. So progressives have a tendency, right, to want to say, you need to understand, you know, why are people committing violence? Why are they in poverty? You know, why are they uh, getting pregnant, right? So, so that's the, the progressive side of things, except in my view, it's, it's pragmatic. You cannot fix a problem if you don't understand what's causing it, mm. right? Um, but at the same time, the other thing that I do is I tell people, um, I don't give advice. I empower people to make their own decisions. And if I'm doing my job, I make myself obsolete. So that's what I try to do. There are never going to be enough laws or policies um, or, you know, nonprofit programs or money that we can throw at a problem. We need to start empowering people to make good decisions. Um, But we have to know how we have to teach them and empower them. And so in terms of where the mental health piece comes in that you were asking earlier, we need to relook at some of those programs and see how we can do more of that, empowering people, training people to, to, to get themselves out of their own circumstances, right, Mm -hmm. and not repeat it. So, so, you know, as I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, that's kind of like, the progressive and the conservative point of view, right? And they're both valid. They're both important. You you need to work together with those. The January 6th investigation um, is ramping up in Congress as they are continuing to um, subpoena many officials um, under the Trump administration and in relation to the Trump campaign, as well as other Republicans. Um, what are your thoughts so far on the efforts to hold these officials accountable to avoid uh, this this violence and, frankly, these um, these efforts to overthrow democracy from happening again? Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because something that is very near to dear to my heart and I'm very passionate about is mental health for the U.S. Capitol Police officers. So it's been over a year. And they have had practically no mental health services. So we have all of these, what, 475, is it, um, congressmen um, focused either for or against this January 6th um, investigation. But not one person thought to check in to make sure that these police officers are getting adequate mental health services. 
not one. And as far as I know, and you know, this is, this is, um, I, I, I trust my, my sources, let's put that way. <laughs> um, so one of the things that normally happens after a crit- would call critical incident is, or tra- you know, a traumatic event like this, is, is a, it's called critical incident stress management. And so a team that is trained specifically in this should really have been deployed for a week after the event and conducted debriefings um, and um, individual sessions, but also taught what we call um, to expect uh, normal, uh, what did we call normal reactions to an abnormal situation, mm. right? You know, depression, panic attacks, anger outbursts, these are all normal reactions to an abnormal situation, right? So we educate people on this. We give them handouts. We give them do's and don'ts as far as coping. I don't wait for somebody to come to me. I go around and I make myself available. I introduce myself. That's why it's important to be there for a while. Let the officers get to know you. It's the same thing we do in the military. You know, you, you, you place somebody on a forward operating base so that they get to know the soldiers, right? They're not just deployed in whenever there's a problem um, so that they feel comfortable talking to you. Um, and I've, I've done that kind of work. So what, what happened in this case is there was already a lot of dysfunction in that agency. And so when this happened, this dysfunction has just compounded the situation, right? Because they don't know how to handle it. And so I use the analogy of a tuning fork. If you keep banging a tuning fork on a table, right? And you never give it a chance to stop vibrating, right? Mm -hmm. Um, this is this is what's happening. They're not being given a chance to learn how to manage their, you know, their reactions and to um, understand them. One of the things that that's uh, essential or or sort of um, pivotal in in critical incident stress management, or we call them SISMs for short, is something called a debriefing which is that you invite um, everybody, and actually it can be mandatory, everybody that was there and you go around and you ask them to talk about what they remember. And the reason why this is important is because everybody has a different perspective. And so what it does is it it, uh, fills in the gaps. And so sometimes, you know, resentments um, that you might harbor towards somebody because you think that they weren't there, they weren't helping, um, actually may be misplaced because you didn't get enough information. But also because when people don't have information, then they fill it in with their own fears or, or guilt or whatever, right? And so by filling in the blanks. You're like, oh, okay. So, so I, there's nothing I could have done about that. 
now I now I realize, you know, so, but in, in, in addition to that, um, what we don't think about very much is the fact that, you know, the way that we perceive the world is through brain chemistry, circuitry, right? And electrical impulses. When you have a very vivid dream, right? You don't, you wake up and you're like, oh my God, that felt so real. That's because you believe whatever your brain tells you, mm. right? So we have to remember that brains get impacted by trauma. And that's why it is so important to get in there immediately. The protocol for SISM is to get in there immediately after a traumatic event, the next day, maybe that same day, later in the day, um, because of the potential long-term impact it can have on the brain. So I absolutely, we need to hold uh, those people involved accountable. Um, we are a system of justice. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and we, and we need to, um, there need to be consequences for the actions, but again, this is another reason why I think we need more mental health expertise in Congress, because if I had been there, I would, that would have been something I would have been asking. Wow. Once again, my guest is Elaine Bilson. She's a Democratic congressional candidate in Maryland, um, running against the number two Democrat in the House of Representatives, hoping to bring lots of change to Congress in regards to mental health and education, women's rights, and also much more. Uh, you can go to her website at GameChanger2022.com. Once again, Ms. Bilson, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Introducing Tide Power Pods. With Cat and Nat. I love how much I can stuff into these machines. But that is such a large load. Don't the stains sneak through? Please. New Tide Power Pods can clean that whole situation. You just toss it in before the close. It's like two regular Tide Pods and then some power and then even more power. With 50% more cleaning power, even your large load got clean. How many kids do you have? Girl, I lost track. There's a lot of kids. And then there's a husband. And then there's me. That's a lot of clothes. Welcome back. So that was a very, very intriguing discussion with Maryland Democratic congressional candidate um, Elaine Belson. I was very intrigued by the conversation. We did talk a lot about uh, mental health and also some of her approaches um, that she may be bringing to Congress if elected. Once again, the primaries um, for that congressional seat is June 28th of this year. Um, so if you are in Maryland and you are listening to this podcast, just be wary of that. Um and so I was very, very intrigued about lots of the initiatives and stuff that she was proposing and also her role as a social worker and how that sort of is going to impact her role uh, or her influence in terms of legislation up on Capitol Hill. So it was a very, very intriguing interview. As I said, this is a historical a historical candidate, a historical campaign uh, running for Congress of the United States. We, I did just do... Um, a fact check on the mental health part. The last part of the interview there, we're talking about mental health for police officers. Um, and there actually was a piece back in February of 2021 uh, for lawmakers calling for mental health help for Capitol Police and also staff in wake of the Capitol riot saying, quote, it's going to prey on their minds. This is from USA Today, quote, standing in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda where pro-Trump rioters violently attacked the building less than a month ago, members of the U.S. Capitol Police solemnly watched as remains of a fallen officer 
officer lost in the siege arrived to lie in honor Tuesday night. The ceremony was a painful reminder of the cost of the January 6th Capitol riot where officer Brian Sicknick was killed and others injured, endured head injuries, excuse me, cracked ribs and smashed spinal disc, and the lingering emotional toll of standing toe-to-toe with an overwhelming and violent mob. Five people died and at least 140 officers in the Washington, D.C. Police Department and the United States Capitol Police have been injured as a result of the two hours long attack. Two more officers were at the Capitol January 6th, quote, took their own lives in the weeks following said Acting D.C. Police Chief Robert Cunty in testimony before Congress last month. It's under, it's unclear, excuse me, if the deaths can be directly connected to the events at the Capitol, end quote. So that was reporting from USA Today on February 25th of last year. When you think back to the January 6th insurrection, what the January 6th committee is doing now to hold these officials accountable, to hold the perpetrators accountable, it is not just the January 6th committee looking to hold the insurrectionists accountable, those who deliberately and violently smashed windows and participated in menacing threats against law enforcement and who invaded the United States Capitol on that day, but also investigating and wanting to hold accountable those who actually initiated this plan without violently smashing windows, but placing calls, pressuring officials to overturn elections and to stop the United States from continuation of a democracy of a democratic republic. And so to get that part there, I mean, that is just absolutely astonishing. It is paralyzing. It is horrifying to witness that as a U.S. citizen. In our lifetimes, we have witnessed an insurrection, a coup attempt against the United States government. That is something that we are going to have to process. That is something that we cannot forget as we go into this year's 2022 midterm elections. That is something that will forever and forever be inched in our minds. It is something that will go down in history, something that will live in infamy. Thank you very much for listening to this very special exclusive episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show um, with Democratic congressional candidate um, from Maryland, Elaine Bilson. This was her first interview, her first published interview. Um, So we very, very much appreciate that. Thank you again for listening. More episodes will be coming out on the Jeremiah Patterson Show soon. Have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired. And as always, take care.